Happy Valentine's Week, listeners. I am so excited to celebrate love and fact that you're about to hear me proclaim in the interview that this episode is dropping on Valentine's Day, February 13th. Upon further review of the calendar, I see now that if you're listening in real time, this ep actually drops the day before Valentine's Day. Obviously, I'm just a little too excited. In honor of this week of love, we picked something a little romantic for episode 34, Natalie Babbitt's Tuck Everlasting. The book was published in 1975 and has been a favorite for teachers and young readers alike ever since. And could we forget to mention that dreamy movie adaptation starring Alexis Bledel, aka Rory Gilmore, that came out in 2002? No, no we could not. Tuck Everlasting is the story of Winnie, a sheltered 10-year-old who dreams of running away from home and doing something big. When she stumbles on a handsome teenager drinking from a natural spring near her home in the woods, she suddenly involves in a bigger adventure than she ever could have guessed. The boy is named Jesse Tuck, and he and his family discovered 87 years prior that said spring holds water that is the key to eternal life. Winnie spends the night with the Tuck family learning all about the pros and cons of immortality. What she doesn't know is that there's a shady man in a yellow suit creeping around her parents' house, trying to convince them to sell him their land so he can take ownership of the spring and bottle it for profit. When the man ventures to the Tuck's house to take Winnie home, he threatens her, and the matriarch of the Tuck family, May, kills him to protect her. The family is terrified to find out what will happen when the authorities try to execute May for murder. Clearly, she won't die because she can't. Winnie steps in and finally gets to play the hero of her own story. All the while, Jessie is trying to convince her to drink the spring water when she gets a little older so that they can live together forever. Yeah, it's a lot to take in. If you're big on Bookstagram, you probably already know this week's guest as Chelsea Reads. She's an English teacher, bookworm, and podcaster. Along with her husband, Curtis, a previous SSR guest, she hosts the He Read, She Read podcast, which is a staple of my personal weekly listening rotation. Follow her at He Read, She Read podcast for podcast updates and at Chelsea Reads for book reviews. As always, those links will be available in the show notes at www.ssrpodcast.com slash listen. Big fan of the podcast? I'm so glad. If you want to support SSR, there are a few ways that you can do it. Share that you're listening on social media, leave a five-star rating or review on iTunes, and be sure that you're following us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and by searching the SSR Podcast on Facebook. You can take your support a step further by joining us as a sponsor on Patreon. For just a few dollars a month, you'll have the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep an independent podcast going, along with other fun rewards, including a monthly newsletter, on-demand book recommendations, input on book selection, free shipping, merch, and more. Learn more at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. I am so grateful to all of the Patreon supporters who are already making a huge difference to the podcast. Your love for SSR seriously means the world to me. Okay, listeners, unlike the Tucks, we're not going to live forever. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hafkosik freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Chelsea. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. Thanks for having me. I feel like you and I have known each other forever just through Instagram. <laughs> It does feel like that. I feel like we would have been best friends as kids, too. I do, too. It's nice to <laughs> find like real people that you connect with on social media because sometimes it is really overwhelming. So it's nice to actually like have a chance to sit down with you for a dedicated hour and talk books, which is, I know, something that we both love. Absolutely. I'm excited for this. Today, well, the day that this episode drops also happens to be Galentine's Day, which is an awesome holiday, which means that tomorrow to listeners who are listening in real time is Valentine's Day. So I suggested to Chelsea that we choose a book that had kind of like a romantic bent. Yeah. Tuck Everlasting, I, I 
I would say it's extremely romantic, but it's not necessarily a romance, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I gave you like the full range. Like I think I gave you some sort of like lighthearted Sarah Dessen, Judy Bloom, and maybe some maybe sort of something in between, and then Tuck Everlasting, which is like you said, has a love story to it, but is also extremely literary and has a lot of other things going on. Yeah, it's beautiful. It is. I mean, just like in the sense of the romantic literature movement, I think this book would fit right into that as well. Yeah. Just with all the nature descriptions. It's so beautiful. I can't wait to talk about every last detail of it. But before we get into it, I am dying to know like what your history is with this book. I think you mentioned to me that you read it when you were a kid and you loved it. But like, do you remember how old you were? Do you have any specific memories of reading it for the first time? I remember reading it really close to when the movie came out. And the movie came out in 2002. So I would have been 10, which is the same age as Winnie in the book. Okay. I can't remember if I read it on my own or if we read it as a class in like fourth or fifth grade. I can't exactly remember what that experience was. I just remember really liking it and then subsequently loving the movie as a kid. I was having the same question. So I was reading online that this is like a widely assigned book. Um, A lot of teachers assign it to their kids. And Natalie Babbitt, the author, actually credits the success of it to so many teachers latching onto it and assigning it because she didn't expect that it would be such a hit. I don't know that I was assigned it. I think I read it around fourth or fifth grade. I sort of like make these judgments based on the fact that I moved halfway through sixth grade. So I picture myself like at one school or the other. And I'm pretty sure that I picked it out from the library at the first school. So I would have been maybe fifth grade. I think it might have been one of those books where eventually we read it as a class. I think it might have been one of those things where I read it on my own first and then we read it as a class or vice versa. I remember spending a lot of time in this book as a kid and like you I have very vivid memories of the movie because obviously Alexis Bledel was like such the thing in 2002 and I rewatched the trailer again this morning And I had like the exact same feelings watching it as I did when I was a kid. I was so excited. I think this was like one of those situations where I had gone to see another movie with my mom and the preview for this came on and because it was 2002 and we didn't have Twitter and like all of the other ways to get previews of movies, I had no idea that this book was being turned into a movie and I freaked out. Like, and I had kind of the (laughs) same feeling this morning watching the trailer again. I did watch the trailer as well because I didn't have enough time to watch the movie. I need to now, but... I wanted to at least watch the trailer and I love that it was like the movie voice guy that nobody uses for trailers anymore. It's like the (laughs) OG Disney guy. Yes. And this super dramatic music. It was really, really good. (laughs) Yeah. It was like everything that I wanted it to be. And I also, I'm going to go back and rewatch it. It's also an amazing cast. It's like all Academy Award winners, which I totally didn't appreciate as a kid. No, but now looking back, I was like, oh my goodness, there's some really great actors in this. It's kind of surprising that it hasn't become one of those hyper classic movies because you see it occasionally, but I don't think it's a movie that people return to that often. It got good reviews. It did relatively well, but it's interesting that with such a powerhouse cast, it didn't sort of stand the test of time as the text did in a bigger way. So getting back into Tuck Everlasting as a grown-up, because I assume that you hadn't read it in like the ensuing two decades, what were those first few chapters like? From the first description, I felt like it just took me right back to childhood, but I felt like I appreciated the figurative language so much more. It's just beautiful. It is. She is an amazing writer. I highlighted so many passages for no other reason than I just liked the way that they sounded. And the thing that I also appreciated more this time around, I think, was just the sense of it being a very atmospheric book. And it's a short book. I mean, it's only about 140 pages, but it packs such a punch and it establishes like such a feeling, such a sense of place. I got the creeps when I was supposed to get the creeps. I teared up when I was supposed to tear up. Like I felt all of the emotions in such a distinct way. And I'm not really an emotional reader. Like I don't cry at books. I tend not to get very tied up in like the feelings associated with a story. And I really did with Tuck Everlasting. And I think as a kid, like you pick up on maybe like the wispy aspects of that. Like you're like, oh, this is a happy book. This is a sad book. But I think I really got more of a sense of the atmosphere that she was creating as an adult. And that was a really cool experience. She's an amazing writer. 
I'm sure that I felt the things I was supposed to feel like you were saying when I was a kid and I was able to put myself in the story, but I certainly wasn't able to appreciate how the author did it the way that I was now. And I think reading it that way was definitely really cool. But yeah, atmospheric is the best way to put it. I wrote down ethereal too. I just... I don't know. That's it struck me, and I I love books to this day that really put you in an atmosphere and make you feel like you're part of the story, but also you can tell that the author's moving you a certain way. So yeah. we meet Winnie, and as we mentioned earlier, she's ten, and you were ten when you read about her, and I was probably about ten. And I think there's a lot that any kid and any adult also can relate to about Winnie. She lives this pretty sheltered existence. Her parents seem to have a lot of money, which I think is more evident in the movie because you get the sense of Alexis Bledel wearing these like fancy clothes and being sort of prim and proper. I don't think that's quite as clear in the book. It's just that, you know, her parents own this beautiful house that seems kind of untouched. And they also have all this land um, on which these woods exist. And she also has these like intense helicopter parents, which is obviously not a phrase that I was aware of when I read this book for the first time. But her parents don't want her to sit on the grass because they don't want her to mess up her stockings. And you get the feeling that she's like never been allowed outside of the fence around the house, which almost gives it this fairy tale quality. Like she's a princess that's been locked away. Yeah, absolutely. At first, I found Winnie a little bit plain and dull. And then obviously she's got a great character arc as the story moves on. But I think that was intentional. And I also couldn't find a physical description of her. And for as descriptive as the author was about everyone else, and we get descriptions of all of the Tuck family, Mm. I think that might have been purposeful so that we could put ourselves in the place of Winnie and feel like that was us. That's so interesting. I hadn't picked up on that, but I think you're right. I have no idea what she looks like other than Alexis Bledel because she's my Winnie, you know, in my mind's eye. (laughs) Absolutely. But I thought for sure she had described her because I had read descriptions about May. And then later we get obviously a vivid description of Jesse. Swoon. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But I flipped through and I couldn't find a description of Winnie. And I thought, well, that surely has to be purposeful because the rest of the book's descriptions are lush and vivid. Yeah. I think it's also important to establish upfront for listeners who have seen the movie perhaps more recently than the book or for whom the movie kind of is like a more vivid memory. In the movie, Winnie's older. We've mentioned a few times already in our conversation in the book, Winnie is 10. And in the movie, she's, I would say, like maybe 15, 16, 17, which makes her much closer chronologically to Jesse's age. And I think it's important to lay that out up front because it really changes the plot in some ways. It also, for me, at moments, like changed my feelings about their relationship because Winnie is seven years younger than Jesse, who is ultimately her love interest. And that was sort of like a weird vibe for me at the beginning. In my head, I was thinking about her as a teenager because I was thinking about the movie. So I just kind of wanted to put that out there because I know so many listeners, when I hear from them, they talk about how much they love the book, loved the movie. And for me, it's so easy to get the two different interpretations confused in my head. So I think that's worth mentioning right up front. Absolutely. And I don't know, I'm sure we'll get to the Jesse and Winnie relationship, but... (laughs) It has its highs for me, and it has its weird lows for me, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) So Winnie is kind of considering running away up front, and I think almost every kid can relate to that, has had a moment of wanting to run away. She's definitely felt very restricted. She has big dreams of wanting to do something big, which I love, um, but she's not quite sure what that looks like. And there was one passage that I highlighted about her feelings the day after she was planning to run away, but she's decided not to. Like she had these big goals. She was talking to her friend, the toad, who seems to be her only friend about how she wants to leave and kind of explore. And she decides not to. And this is what the author says about that. It was one thing to talk about being by yourself, doing important things, but quite another when the opportunity arose in real life. Well, the world was a dangerous place. People were always telling her so, and she would not be able to manage without protection. No one ever said precisely what it was that she would not be able to manage, but she did not need to ask. Her own imagination supplied the horrors. And I think that's like a really good demonstration of not only who Winnie is, but also the place where she's coming from. And as you said, she has such a great character arc. So I like the way that sets up her kind of view of the world early on. Absolutely. And 
I thought there are so many kids books where the characters do run away and go by themselves or they're extremely precocious and it seems like they have no fear and they just go and do these big things and that's part of the book I think especially in fantasy and I liked that Winnie I thought was more realistic I certainly had the same fears and anxieties that she did. I wanted to please my parents. I wanted to follow the rules. And of course, there was still this tug at maybe being defiant, but she's got that clear sense of right and wrong. She wants to do the right thing. And she's more cautious. And I I really felt connected to that personally, because I was not the kid who would just go striking out on her own. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And her great adventure doesn't begin because she's like, screw this, I'm going to go away on an adventure by myself. It begins out of a sense of necessity because she begins to take baby steps into taking an adventure and then is like swept into this much bigger situation. I think also just before she's thinking this to herself and like considering whether she should try to run away again, her naivete, I don't know how to say that word. How do you say naivete? Yeah, that sounds right. Naivete. All right. Mm -hmm. That actually came off much more smoothly than I thought that it would. Um, Her naivete is really exposed by her first interaction with the man in the yellow suit because this guy, like, comes marching up to her house and starts talking to her, and she seems, like, not that concerned about it. She engages in conversation with him. She shares that her family has owned the house for a long time, and I immediately got the creeps from him, which I think is such a credit to Natalie Babbitt's writing. But it's just, it's interesting. Her radar to me from the beginning seemed so off. Like, she was afraid of the wrong thing and cautious in ways that maybe she didn't need to be, which I thought was interesting. Like she just had so much to learn about who to trust and what you could do within yourself to make you brave and to make you successful and all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. And even when the tucks kidnap her, (laughs) you can see her sort of being like, well, I should be scared because that's what you should feel when you're kidnapped. But these people seem really nice and friendly and I really like them, so I'm not scared. And there's even this back and forth with her about what she should do or what she should feel. And I think the book is really her figuring out how to, I don't know, have the autonomy to decide that for herself Mm -hmm. instead of thinking about what she should do. And I think in that vein, there's there's a secondary theme in the book that I picked up on that's sort of about judgment and like making snap judgments about people because on the outside, the man in the yellow suit seems to kind of have it together aside from the fact that he's wearing a yellow suit, which is like hard for me to understand and also makes me think of the man with the yellow hat and Curious George. Aside from the fact that he's wearing a suit that I can only imagine isn't very attractive, he seems to sort of like be a professional like he probably is much more similar to men that Winnie has met in her life and the tucks while very nice and very sweet when she goes to their house she finds that it's a disaster like it's dirty it's messy it's very removed from her own life and sort of Winnie having to figure out like how to contend with all that information and figure out who she can trust who the good guys are who the bad guys are I think that's really important for kids to be able to like hone their instincts about who's nice who's mean and what first impressions sort of play into that. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned that the stranger, the man in the yellow suit, reminded you sort of like the Curious George yellow hat. But all I can picture is the child catcher from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Oh my gosh. I'm traumatized just thinking about it. You're so right. That's exactly who I picture when I read this book. And nothing could strike fear in my heart like the child catcher from that movie. It is the scariest. Oh my god, like how many nightmares did I have about him? Countless. Yeah. Countless. To this day, I hate watching that scene. Oh my god. But that's exactly, exactly how I picture him. That's definitely his energy. Is like one of, he's just like, he's like preying on children and he knows that she like doesn't understand. So he's like, hello little girl, yeah. let me talk to you about your house. So creepy. <gasps> that's so creepy. I'm going to have to go back and watch a clip of the child catcher, but not at night time because that won't end well (laughs) no absolutely not (laughs) no no. and then watch the trailer again featuring ben kingsley with like weird long scraggly hair as the man yellow suit in tech everlasting wow that's a very interesting point i like that comparison which i i think the child catcher is way too cartoonish yeah like that would have been ridiculous in the movie you're supposed to sort of have this like sinister thing but Winnie obviously finds him appealing to talk to you but for me because he's so creepy that's just where my mind went right away (laughs) yeah he's supposed to kind of blend in but in our mind we're like oh no you're not blending in you're evil 
Exactly. So after she has this interaction, after she considers running away and then doesn't, she decides she's going to take some like baby steps. And she's like, I'm just going to go out and explore the woods. Because interestingly, even though she's lived there her whole life, we kind of get the impression that she's never been out in the woods. I really feel like she's never left her house, which is so sad. And as she's walking, she stumbles across a boy, almost a man, I think is how she describes him. And he's leaning against a tree in this clearing. And obviously he is handsome. He is sitting relaxed with his back against the trunk and he seemed so glorious to Winnie that she lost her heart at once. He has curly brown hair, battered trousers. He's just like chilling and it's all over for Winnie in that moment. She's 10 years old. This is her first crush. (laughs) She's probably never seen a teenager before. Oh yeah, definitely. And you can just picture like the filtered sunlight coming down onto his hair. It's like an Instagram filter. It's like a beautiful Instagram filter. (laughs) And my favorite part about this interaction upon like reflecting on it is that he's drinking from a spring and she chit chats with him for a minute. And then she's like trying to be cool. Like again, she's 10 years old. There's this stunning 17 year old boy. And she's like, yeah, hey, I'm just going to drink from this. Like no big deal. And he's like, no, no, you really shouldn't do that. And again, trying to be cool. She's like, no, it's let me just have some. It's fine. I'm fine. And obviously, like, the words on the page don't necessarily read that way. But just for me, like, thinking about myself as a 10-year-old and trying to interact with somebody who was older, somebody that I thought was attractive, the dynamic is so interesting because, like, she's just trying to, like, impress him and make it seem like it's no big deal that she's going to take a drink from the same spring that he's drinking. Like, I drink from spring all the time. (laughs) I love that you read it that way. It is true. I think that 10 or 11 age range is probably like the first crush for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And it does, I think it does tend to be someone older. I don't think that that's a strange part of the book. I think that's really typical and totally relatable. Yeah, I think so too. I don't think her crush on him was weird. I think his attraction to her was just surprising. And maybe maybe it's not... Okay, I don't think it's meant to be creepy at all. I don't think Natalie Babbitt meant it to be creepy at all. I think, if anything, maybe it's a nod to the fact that like Jesse is, spoiler alert, timeless and age... You know, not to be cliche, but like to him, age is just a number, and maybe there's something about her spirit or her personality that's very attractive to him. But I do think, like, I just had moments when he was clearly like drawn to her that I just I didn't quite know what to do with that. And I think that's just like a product of the narratives that we read now, the way we are sort of instructed to interpret these kinds of things. But again, like, I think if we look at all of these characters within the Tuck family as people that are immune to the concept of age, then I guess it does become a little bit less weird. I actually read it differently. I didn't really see any attraction from him. Mm. I think that he is so lonely. Mm. Um, May mentions that the brothers don't get along very well. They sort of go off on their separate ways to find work, make money, and then come back home the first week of August. At one point, Miles had a family. He had a wife and children. And so he's got memories of that. May and Tuck have each other. Mm. So they've got company. And Jesse has never had someone to love or care for in that way. And he does tell Winnie, wait until you're 17. You're the same age as me. And then drink from the water and we can be together. And I don't think that comes from anything other than this is the first person in the world other than his family that knows his secret and that he can see a future with and have a companion. Hmm. And so I don't even know that attraction comes into it at all, certainly in the movie when it's um, Jonathan Jackson and Alexis Bledel. (laughs) But... But in the book, it struck me as he must be incredibly lonely. He can't form a real connection with anyone. So that's sort of where I took it. But maybe that was just me like wanting to protect myself from anything that smacked at all of creepiness. But no, I like that reading. She treated her like a little sister, especially at first. Yeah. And maybe part of the way that I read it was colored by the movie. And having seen the movie and sort of thinking about it that way, I like the way you're reading it, that it wasn't necessarily about Winnie. It was just about the fact that, like, he could build a connection with somebody who knew that he and his family had listeners. If you don't know this, they had 
years and years and years ago, 87 years ago to be exact, they had all had water from this spring and they discovered that it has made them immortal. And Winnie now being the only person that knows this sort of is like his safe haven and somebody that he could grow old with or stay young with, depending on how you want to look at it. So I guess in that sense, like maybe it wasn't about her and it wasn't about an attraction. I like that reading of it. I think maybe it's a mix of both. I do think there was something about her that he liked like I think he liked that she was just adventurous enough to push the boundaries to like leave home and that she asked a lot of questions and like him she seemed to see only the positive elements of being everlasting like they both were very drawn to the idea of like seeing lots of things and doing lots of things and his family for the most part is so negative like they're so burned out by being alive and having to bear the burden of the secret and trudge through life and I think even though she's young he is very excited by the fact that he's met somebody who wants to take advantage of it the way that he does. Yeah. And to be fair, the rest of the family, I think, is just as excited about her. Yeah. Maybe in a different way. But she's got this really sweet relationship with Tuck, the patriarch of the family. And there are a lot of passages where he really dotes on her. The whole family just seems to treat her like this magical being, even though they're the ones that are magical. Because she's just got this different sense of life about her. So I think when I was reading the passages with her and Jesse, all of the romance and the crushing came from her end. And that was totally believable to me that she would have this major crush and blush all the time when he walked by her or talked to her. But I think for him and for the rest of the family, they were just so smitten with another person because they're lonely. I think they're so lonely. Yeah, and I think May has two sons, and so she loves the idea of having a little girl around to dote on, and it's just nice for them to take care of somebody. And I think it also seemed to take the focus away from their predicament. Like, they could share the story with her, but there was this new, like, relationship to explore, a new person to get to know. And because they've been in hiding for so long, really, their life has been very boring and isolated. And so there's just something about her that's a breath of fresh air. And I remember being very taken, though, of course, with the romance between Winnie and Jesse. And in hindsight, there wasn't much of a romance, obviously. Um, but I think as a kid, it felt extremely dreamy to me because I was reading it much closer to Winnie's age than I was to Jesse's. Yeah, I would agree with that totally. I think I think I got just a totally different reading as a grown-up. But <laughs> as a kid, I do think, especially if you can relate to that heartthrob because the way that Jesse's described in the book, how can you not, as a reader, if you're attracted to boys, how can you not crush on him? Oh my God, I love him. Like, sorry, Matt, but I love Jesse. <laughs> I love you, Jesse. So yeah, to kind of like round out the love story, because I think, you know, there's a lot of other plot that we can talk about. But since we're talking about the Jesse-Winnie relationship, I think we should sort of like finish talking about what happens there, which is that Jesse proposes that, as you mentioned, Winnie wait till she's 17 and then she goes to drink some of the water from the spring. Then he suggests that she goes to find him and they can live happily ever after, exploring things, seeing the world, doing all the things that I think he wants to do as an immortal man that maybe his family is less inclined to do because they're so unhappy with some of the effects of drinking the water. So that's his plan, his brilliant plan. And just before they are about to be separated later on in the book, he very sweetly brings her like a little bottle of the water and says, you know, save this for when you're 17. But she makes an interesting decision instead of drinking it herself. Although, like, to be fair, she lives very close to the spring. So she could go anytime, which she acknowledges. She decides to pour it on her little toad friend so that he yeah, can live forever, toad. which was like <laughs> such a reminder of how young she is. Like, I think I'd forgotten by this point in the book that she's 10. Like, she's a baby. And she's been thrust into this world of adults with these very high stakes. And it was like a kind of a nice callback to her youth when she was just like, no, like, I just want to save the toad forever. Yeah, I thought it was really bittersweet because you get a sense of what's to come. I think that was a little bit of foreshadowing that she used the water on the toad. And then later at the very end of the book, the toad comes back mm. and serves as sort of like the final heart twinge, I think, of the end of the book. 
hopping around Winnie's grave. Yeah. So sad. So yes, Winnie does not decide to go back to the spring on her own. Sadly, listeners, she marries somebody else and she, like all of us, does die. The Tucks come back years and years later and see that she passed away, I think, two years prior to their their visit. And I found this really great essay in the Michigan Daily that was written last year. Um, and it's all about like books that built us and it focuses on Tuck Everlasting. And the writer has this beautiful passage about what this particular story arc taught him or her about love and about love stories. So I did want to share that because it really, I really connected to it. I'd experienced nothing like the authentic and harsh reality of Tuck. The story, through all of its magic and peril, offered a redeeming hope. The main character, Winnie, would wait for one of the Tucks, Jesse, by drinking from the spring that offers eternal life and therefore living until his return. Or so it appears. Instead, the Tucks returned to Winnie's town decades later to find her grave. She neglected to drink the water and await true love. And so the book ends. How, I wondered, could someone offer such a wonderful tonic of love and language and then rip its very roots from readers? And why? These questions are what makes Babbitt's novel wonderful. Sorry, I'm just letting that sink in. <laughs> yeah, everyone, just take a minute, let it sink in. I think it captures how I felt as a reader really well. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and I think you're supposed to feel sad because you do feel connected to Jesse and the Tuck family. And there's definitely part of me that would have loved for her to live forever with him. But the realistic part of me that as a grown up can see now, well, it was an extremely superficial crush and that her being with the family taught her about living. And then hopefully she applied those lessons with her own family and in the rest of her life. And she did, I think, did she live into her 80s? Was it 87, which is how long the Tucks had been? Yeah, I think that was the crafty little thing that Natalie Babbitt did. Yeah. Yeah. And so that that is a long, full life. And so, she had children. She she got married. Like she yeah. she made a lot of beautiful things happen for herself, even though it wasn't with the Tucks. Yeah. So yeah, mixed feelings about that. Well, and in some ways, their whole relationship reminded me a little bit of Twilight because it was like Edward's suggestion to Bella that she wait until she was really ready to become a vampire and then she could live forever with him. And then ultimately, like, obviously she, she does. And so that's kind of like the alternate path that Winnie could have taken. But there are definitely some shades of twilight in that, like, we can live forever in love if you make this very hard decision. And I think this is like a much simpler, cleaner ending to the one that Bella experiences in the Twilight series. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I would love to see the chart, the pie chart or Venn diagram of people who read and loved Tuck Everlasting and then also got addicted to the Twilight series. Yes. And, <laughs> totally. And see that reading trajectory. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the overlap's pretty big for sure. Definitely. Yeah, I definitely wrote down Twilight as well. This feels like the precursor. Baby Twilight, sort of like Twilight for beginners. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, listeners. Well, there's your Valentine's Day love story. We're done with that. We're going to move on to some other stuff because there's just a lot in this book. Like I said, for 140 pages, we get a lot in this story. Um, Winnie's been whisked away to spend time with the Tucks. They want to explain to her the nature of their problems, that she understands why it has to stay a secret. Obviously, they're very concerned that if everybody finds out about the spring, there's going to be madness. Everybody's going to want to drink from it because, in theory, everybody wants to live forever, but because they've experienced it and they know how difficult it is, they really don't want others to find themselves in that situation unless they're really ready for it and understand what they're getting into. So they explain that to her. She goes out on the boat with Tuck, who becomes her favorite. Tuck is what the father goes by, even though obviously all of their last names are Tuck. And he has so many amazing bits of wisdom about living and dying and why it's important to kind of find the balance between being afraid of dying and living your life. And one of the passages that I highlighted from him after when he's saying like, I hear that being alive forever might kind of suck, but I don't want to die either. He says, but dying's part of the wheel right there next to being born. You can't pick out the pieces you like and leave the rest. Being part of the whole thing, that's the blessing, but it's passing us by as tucks. Living's heavy work, but off to one side, the way we are, it's useless too. It doesn't make sense. If I knowed how to climb back on the wheel, I'd do it in a minute. You can't have living without dying. Let's let that one sink in too, everyone. 
Thank you. I know I was just reading my notes on that one because I wrote that down too. And then you get all of these lush nature descriptions and we even see sort of the change of the seasons. But Tuck compares his family to rocks on the side of the road or in a stream where everything's passing them by and they don't move and change. And I thought that metaphor was really interesting. The rest of life around them is the water moving exactly through them. And later in the book, because obviously they go back and visit Winnie's grave in like 1950 or something like that, there are vehicles driving by. You can sense all of these changes that they've seen over their lifetime, but have they really changed at all? So I think... It was really interesting the way that he put that. And I just loved his relationship with Winnie. I think as much as when I was 10 and I read this, I probably was most in love with Jesse. But now when I read it, Tuck was my favorite. He was so wise and so sweet and really wanted to make her safe, but also wanted her to be smart. He didn't want her to be safe to the point of being sheltered and ignorant to the dangers of the world. He also wanted her to be informed and to like set her up to make good decisions for herself, which I think is really empowering for young girls. Yeah, I would agree. Maybe 20 pages later, she talks to Miles and Miles has a talk with her. So she gets the talk about living forever (laughs) from multiple people in the family. And Miles says people got to do something useful if they're going to take up space in the world. Mm. And so I thought Miles combined with Tuck's wisdom really left an impression on Winnie. I don't think it was one or the other. I think it was both of them. Mm-hmm. And then May doesn't really talk to her much about living forever, does she? I don't think so. Like she's part of the initial story, but I think May is sort of like the least complicated of the characters. She just wants her family to get along. Like she gets so upset when the brothers are fighting. And I think she is like a people pleaser. Like if she's like, if we're going to live forever, we all have to love each other. And that's kind of where she stands on it. Miles really has this like very tragic story. So I think it's important for him to share that with Winnie. Angus, Tuck, which, you know, Tuck. We'll just call him Tuck. He's so wise and really wants to help her. And Jesse obviously has like big ideas about what he could do if he lives forever. So I think May just chooses to be quiet in all of it. She's really happy-go-lucky. She's really easygoing. She even says, sometimes I just forget that I'm living forever. It's like, this just is the way it is. La la la. Uh And it's evident that her sense of like spontaneity and sort of that like messiness of life is exemplified in the house Mm -hmm. where her projects are all over and it's messy and everything's out of place, but there's a lot of love. And so although Tuck is very much seems like a leader of the family and he's very wise, it seems like May's really the heart and she's the one who holds everyone together with that love and that sense of positivity, I guess. I was also just so struck by their explanation of the logistics and the practicalities of living forever, because as a kid, that's definitely not something that I picked up on. And as a grown-up, you realize that if you're going to live, you have to find a way to feed yourself. You have to find a place to sleep at night. You have to keep warm in the winter and cool in the summer, and you need to have access to clean drinking water. And if you have children, they need to have clothes on and shoes on and all of these things. And I think reading this book as an adult and hearing about Tuck and May's experience sort of like trudging on again through their life, I was just so much more struck by the fact that like this is a huge responsibility that they have to somehow like make the best of an eternal life. There's no way they can die. In an extremely dark and for me perhaps too dark and upsetting moment, they relay this moment about Tuck like turning his shotgun on himself and like shooting himself in the face and he didn't die. And so there's nothing that they can do to put an end to this. And they don't want to be starving. They don't want to be uncomfortable. If they have to be alive, they want to make the best of it. And I think that's not something that I could really wrap my head around as a kid. And I definitely appreciated that sort of like higher level thinking that was part of like the framework of of their very unique situation. Yeah, and they want to make the best of it, but they have completely cut themselves off from the world. And on the one hand, I think Winnie was cut off from the world too, so she relates to them in that way. And she realizes that she doesn't want to be cut off like the Tucks are. And maybe that's one of the reasons she chooses not to drink the water. 
But on the other hand, I can understand why they are because they've seen enough of humans and they know what might happen to them if people knew that they could live forever. And I think they would have a hard time getting close to people if they couldn't tell the truth. In theory, they could go and find some friends who are their same age. And for a few years, they could be really close friends. But then after maybe five or six years go by and they're not aging and there's the tension of a kept secret, can you really have a deep relationship with those people? Miles has been burned. Mm. He had a wife and children and they grew old and he didn't. And that was too much for them to handle. So they left him. Through their experiences, I think it's apparent why they've cut themselves off, but it's also really sad that they're so alone in the world. Yeah, and I think as at least for me as a kid, it was all about like the romance of living forever and being afraid of death and that kind of trumped the concern and now as an adult, it's switched. Like all of the difficulties and all of the logistics of managing your life for literally forever. And never reaching retirement age. Never never <laughs> just being able to like go on a cruise uh, or like, I don't know, sit by a pool somewhere. Yeah, it becomes scarier and you start to understand more where the tucks were coming from. And then like you said, you know, they've they've tried to build relationships with people. It hasn't been successful. It sounds like a lot of the people that they had met and made friends with were accusing them of, of being witches, of, you know, practicing black magic and that kind of thing. So nobody wanted to stay committed to them as friends for a long period of time. So they were alone. They had no choice but to work hard. Like they had to just like keep going. There was no end to this particular stage in their life. So um, I definitely understood that more. And it raises the stakes at the end of the book um, when May is put in a situation where she is going to be executed. And they're like, oh crap. Uh, If they try to execute her, she's not going to die. And then the secret is out. Yeah. I, ugh. That was so tense. That was definitely the climax of the story. That's really Winnie's turning point Mm -hmm. where she has the opportunity to, like she's been wishing for all along, take action and do something. And she even kind of has a callback to what Miles said and to what she was wishing for and before when she's like waiting for midnight to strike after she and Jesse make this escape plan to get May out of jail, she says at midnight she would make a difference in the world. And so you get the sense that the lessons from the tucks are really sinking into her. She's being emboldened. She's ready to make decisions for herself. She's ready to take action and be a part of the world instead of being sheltered. And so she still is struggling to believe that they're actually living forever. Yeah, that kind of cracked me up too. Like, <laughs> she was like, I really love them so much. They're my best friends. Like, I trust them. They're the best. But, like, I don't know that I trust this thing. Um, yeah. But I liked, I did like that she was kind of a cynic. One of the chapters opens with a line that says, like, Winnie did not believe in fairy tales. And I liked that about her because I would say that most of the books that I was reading at this age were heroined by a little girl who was, like, obsessed with princesses and fairy tales. So I liked that she was a little bit cynical. But at this point in the book, I'm like, if you you don't believe them, then why are you even getting involved? Like, just go home. But I, I kind of like that it's this layer of the Tucks have this urgency to get May out of jail because they know that if she goes to the gallows, people will discover their secret. And Winnie has this urge to help them because she just doesn't want May to die. So she's got this still, she's not quite sure she believes them. She thinks if May goes to the gallows, that that's the end of her life. And so those sort of competing motivations, I think, are kind of interesting and add a little bit of a layer to it. But I forget the moment that Winnie decided that she believed them. I think it was after they had successfully pulled off the escape. Like, because I think you're right. I think she went into it not being entirely sure. I think they left something behind for her. Some, it was a very small moment. And that's, I feel sort of silly not remembering it. But I think it was a very small sort of like symbolic touch on the part of the author, maybe. Yeah. Where they left something behind or there was some symbol kind of at the tree or maybe in the jail where she realized like, oh, no, they were telling the truth. I know now I feel silly too because I definitely noted it as I was reading, but I didn't highlight it or write it down. There was just a lot going on at the end of the book. And so it was, I feel like the first two thirds of the book was all symbolism and these beautiful passages and great quotes from the characters. And then the last third of the book is much more action driven. And so I definitely lost track of some of those like more artful details in the Absolutely. Back, like 50 pages. Yeah. I feel like I could read this again and notice something different 
just because the language is so rich. And I'm sure I missed so much when I was reading this as a kid. I don't know. I think it's just that then she pours the water over the toad and she's like, well... Yeah, that there's more water in the woods. Maybe I can decide. Yeah, I don't know that she had like a specific groundbreaking moment. I think she sort of just felt that she trusted them. And it was all about the toad. And I'm curious, you are an English teacher. So I feel like your Mm -hmm. bread and butter is symbolism. Uh, At (laughs) least my English teachers growing up, their bread and butter was symbolism. I think the toad has a lot of different uses throughout the book. Um, But I couldn't figure out if there was one thing that the toad was meant to symbolize. At first, I was like, okay, this is her friend. She finally has a friend. This is sort of who she's bouncing her ideas off of. And in the end, she saves that friend um, and wants him to live forever. But I wasn't sure if there was something more there. Because we see the toad again and again she thinks about the toad like at the beginning of the book when she decides that she's not going to run away she even at one point is like oh I hope the toad's not out there again like you know I told him that I was going to run away and it would be so embarrassing if he sees that I stayed and he just kind of pops up throughout the book so I'm wondering if you had any other thoughts about him and what he was all about I think a toad or a frog that's such a fairy tale kind of animal or symbol So it sort of contributed to that feeling for me. Mm. I don't know if there was one thing that he was supposed to symbolize, but I did love that he was her friend. And I think he just sort of serves the purpose of Winnie kind of coming out and reflecting on things a little bit. She's able to talk to him so we get ideas of her consciousness and things like that. I don't know if there's a specific symbol that I thought of with him other than like I picture Toad as a companion. It's like very Disney movie princess kind of thing. What I really latched onto with the symbolism was more of like the man in the yellow suit, Mm. just because he's described and he has a black hat on, which obviously is very symbolic of death. And then, you know, his yellow suit could symbolize money because he wants to ultimately make money from the spring. So that's part of why he's so sneaky. He overhears the conversation that the Tucks have with Winnie and learns that that's the eternal spring and then through trickery gets the deed to the woods. So I thought the yellow could symbolize money, but also could be life because Natalie Babbitt mentions like the sun being like the wheel all the time. So the toad escaped me a little bit more, but in terms of symbolism, he's more of like what I really latched onto there. See, I knew it was your bread and butter. Like, I just I knew. <laughs> I knew you were going to have some good... Yeah, because I did pick up on some of those symbols. The thing that I really loved about the man in the yellow suit, at least from a writing perspective, was his whole backstory and the reason that he knew to be looking for the tux. So his grandmother's best friend was Miles's wife who went on to leave him and take the kids away because she saw that something funky was going on with the family. And so the man in the yellow suit grew up knowing Miles's wife and children. I think they actually lived in his house for a bit. So he knew that there was a music box in the family that May would carry that played this very specific song. And the kids had taught him that song. And that was a very vivid part of his childhood. So he had sort of spent a lot of his life trying to learn if there really was such a thing as an eternal spring because Miles's wife didn't really know. Like, she just knew something weird was going on. She wasn't sure who to trust, if she could actually buy into any of the things that Miles was telling her. So the man in the yellow suit went to college and studied all of these very academic pursuits of philosophy and religion, all of these things that he thought would help him figure out this question of immortality um, and in the end he he forgets about it because he's like this isn't going anywhere but he hears the song from the music box that he'd grown up knowing and and that's how he knows like it's time to get back into this hunt and see if he can find the text that he can obviously as you mentioned um, really take advantage financially of this water that they had to drink so many years ago. I love a couple of things about that with his backstory. I love that the Tucks were this folklore in his family, and you wonder how far that story spread, because of course that just seems like a bedtime story that people would tell over and over again. Yeah. I love that. And then I love that we get this contrast between him. He's studied philosophy, he's studied science, he's studied all of these things. He's all high and mighty and thinks that he knows everything, and he puts the Tucks down for being poor and disheveled and he thinks well you're living like this you don't deserve the water 
and yet he clearly knows nothing. Whereas Tuck or the rest of the family, they've lived forever and they might have a quaint house. They might be of a lower class, but they've got this wisdom and love that the man in the yellow suit completely misses out on. And so we get that very clear contrast of education doesn't mean everything. They've lived life and that can matter more. And if I were teaching this, there would be so much to talk about with class and looking at it through that lens because there are so many mentions, especially Winnie, who comes from this upper-class home. There's a lot about her confronting a family that lives differently from her and how that comes across to her. And then these people who are telling the tucks that they are worthless. And yeah, there's just, there's a lot in the book with like the clashes between the upper and lower class. And I thought that was really interesting. And in the end, the tucks prevail because they were able to, through love and through wisdom, like they were able to get Winnie to trust them. And because of that, she was willing to put herself out there in a way that ultimately saves May's life. Not that she would have died, but something very terrible would have happened to this whole family if the people in the outer world had found out that she wasn't going to actually be killed by an execution. So she saves them because they were honest and loving toward her and the man in the yellow suit is killed. So the Tuck's way ends up being the right way, despite the fact that, yes, they're going to have to continue to live forever and deal with the same problems that they've always had to. I think the book in the end shows that like, no matter what problems you're dealing with, if you approach people from a place of love and wisdom, no matter what your circumstances are, you can make a friend that will always look out for you and protect you and do what he or she can to save you. Yeah, absolutely. Did your stomach just completely drop when there's that moment in the book where the man in the yellow suit is dying because Mm -hmm. May hits him over the head with the butt of a rifle? Yeah. And Tuck is just staring like really longingly at him Mm -hmm. because he's basically like wishing for death. And there's just that moment. (sighs) And your stomach drops. So dark. Like, my poor sweet Tuck. Like, I hate that he he is so deep. It's just, it's hard because I understand, like, he doesn't want to be stuck in his life anymore. But like you said, it's, it's a heartbreaking. And it does make your stomach drop when this character that you've fallen in love with is like, I wish that I could be that guy, like, on the floor dying right now. Yeah. I love, I guess, because this book, it is so romantic and magical and atmospheric, but the realism and the dark moments make it just feel so relevant and real and visceral. I agree. And I I think it's a really artful, near perfect way to teach kids about death. I was reading an interview with the author who basically said that the writing of the book was inspired by her daughter who couldn't sleep one night when she was very young because she had a nightmare and realized that she was afraid of dying. And the author tried to have a conversation with her about it and to kind of break it down and explain to her the best way that she could. And she realized that it was such a complicated thing and also that kids often are talked down to about the issue of death and parents try to ignore it and try to explain it away. And she wanted to come up with a story that would communicate some of these bigger themes about death and about like the cycles of life. And with that in mind, I really do think that this is about as perfect as you could get. And it's such, it's just so interesting the way the story came together and such a testament to how brilliant she is that like, these are the characters that she used and the story that she chose to tell. I don't know if your book had the little like author interview question in the Mm -hmm. back, but I liked someone asked her, what do you like to write about? And she says, I write about the same questions that I had when I was in elementary school. And I think that's so sweet. I admire children's authors so much because I don't know that I can go back and really connect with that part of me and remember what I was thinking about in elementary school. I've always been like above my age yeah, (laughs) and really quick to like grow up and grow out of things. And maybe that's different. If you have a kid of your own, you're able to experience that again through them. But I just really admire her for really capturing the mind of a 10-year-old in Winnie. And yeah, I mean, it's about death, but it's also about making your own decisions and sort of striking out as your own person, forming your own identity separate from your parents, which I think that age range is probably the proper developmental stage where you're starting to individualize. And 
having like kind of a quest for a life purpose, which 10 is a little young to quest for your life's purpose. But I love that Winnie says like she wants to do something important. So definitely, I think it handles the issue of death really well, but there's so much to it, including friendship as well. Yeah, I think it's a it's a love story and not necessarily a romantic one, but that doesn't make it any less about love. And I think it's a really special book. We kind of had a preview of this conversation before we started recording, so I already know what your answer is going to be. But for the listeners out there, did reading this book, again, now for SSR, make you dislike this book, ruin it for you, or did it make you love it all the more? I think it made me love it way more. I think I probably love it more now than I did as a kid. I remember really liking it, and then I loved the movie, but I think that I would recommend it to adults because there's so much that you can get out of this that I don't think you can access as a kid. And I think this would be super fun to read with kids. And as an adult, it will take you maybe two or three hours of straight reading time. To oh, read. yeah, if that. Yeah, so I think it took me longer because I was pausing to write down a bunch of quotes, but it's super short. Yeah, if you were just sitting down to read it, maybe a few hours, I'll include a link to buy it in the show notes for those who are interested. Chelsea, I cannot wait to hear what your answer to this question is because I know you're a huge reader. What books are you reading now or books that you've read recently would you like to recommend to our listeners? It does not have to be a children's book or a YA book. I was thinking about this because I knew you would ask. <laughs> no pressure. I think, especially for people who read and loved Talk Everlasting, if you really like books that are heavy on atmosphere and maybe even have that sort of ethereal, otherworldly quality while being really grounded in reality, I would recommend Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. And I think that deals with a lot of the same issues that Tuck Everlasting did of how do you live life in, you know, odd circumstances of death. And then I would also recommend really anything by Jesmyn Ward because she's amazing, but Salvage the Bones is a really good one. And that has to do with a family who is surviving Hurricane Katrina. And so you get the really lush nature descriptions, the atmosphere has a really huge influence on the story. And so I would say Station Eleven or Salvage the Bones are much more adult comparisons to Tuck Everlasting. I have not read Salvage the Bones, but I read and loved Station Eleven. It's one of my favorite books that I've read probably in the last 10 years. I know it can be polarizing. People have very strong feelings about it, but I recommend it to everyone. It's beautifully written um, and as you said deals with some of the themes I would say of Tuck Everlasting with a much different kind of lens um, and obviously more adult so I will include links to both of those books along with Tuck Everlasting in our show notes I will also include a link to He Read She Read which is Chelsea's podcast with her husband Curtis he is a previous guest of SSR I love He Read She Read it is so fun to listen to Um, I really feel like I as I said like know Curtis and Chelsea I know them better now obviously haven't had them on SSR but (laughs) Even before I spoke to you one-on-one, I felt like I knew you both. You give great book recommendations, and it's just a really engaging show. So listeners, if you haven't checked it out yet, I encourage you to do so. The link to listen will be in my show notes. Thank you, Allie. Oh, I had one other thing (gasps) to ask you about. Okay. When you were doing all your research for Tuck Everlasting, did you come across Tuck Everlasting the musical? I did. Well, I know it was on Broadway, and randomly, like, the only fact that I found, admittedly, on Wikipedia is that it was nominated for a Tony for, like, Best Costumes. And I was like, oh, well, thanks thanks for that knowledge, I, Wikipedia. <laughs> I feel really strongly that it should not be a musical. I agree. I and remember, I'm kind of upset about it. I remember seeing it in New York. Like, I remember seeing signs for it around and being like, I love Tuck Everlasting. And then I was like, but no. No, no that's a pass. It's a children's musical. So, and it's like, you can just tell from the pictures, it's all peppy and happy. And I'm like, no, yeah, <laughs> you're I ruining the whole mood of the book. <laughs> yeah, I don't feel good about it. I'm not excited that they did that. It seems like a, like smaller companies perform it too. And like, that's cool. I mean, it's a good story. I feel like for a children's theater, it would be, it would be neat, but definitely like not something that I was gonna go pay to see on Broadway while no. I was here. I don't know if it's I still think, on. I don't think it is. I don't think so. I think it would be a great straight play. Mm-hmm. When I was growing up near Milwaukee, there's first stage children's theater in town, and they often would adapt 
kids' books themselves and, like, write a play. And so we would read the book in class and then go see the play at the children's theater for a field trip. Fun. And I was trying to remember if they did Tuck Everlasting because I wouldn't be surprised if they did. But I think it would be great in the sense of a stage adaptation. I just got so upset when I saw this, like, bright, happy musical. You ruined (laughs) it. I was personally offended. (laughs) I'm going to see if I can find some clips to include as part of the show notes or some photos because listeners are going to want to see this. I agree. It's It's not what it should be. It's definitely a letdown to the story. I don't think Natalie Babbitt would be pleased. I don't think so. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I really loved having you. It was so fun to talk Tuck Everlasting. I think we probably could have gone another two or three hours about this book. Oh, easily. Thanks for having me on, Allie. Absolutely. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.